Section 16. A Godly Person is a Patient Person. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. James 5.11. Patience is a star that shines in a dark night. There is a twofold patience. There is patience in waiting, and there is patience in enduring. Patience in waiting. If a godly person does not obtain his desire immediately, he will wait until the mercy is ripe. My soul waiteth for the Lord. Psalm 136. There is good reason why God should have the timing of our mercies. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. Isaiah 60, 22. Deliverance may delay beyond our time, but it will not delay beyond God's time. Why should we not wait patiently for God? We are servants. It is fitting for servants to wait. We wait for everything else. We wait for the fire until it burns. We wait for the seed until it grows. James 5.7 Why cannot we wait for God? God has waited for us. Isaiah 30.18 Did he not wait for our repentance? How often did he come year after year before he found fruit? Did God wait for us, and cannot we wait for him? A godly person is content to await God's timing. Though it tarry, wait for it. Habakkuk 2.3 Patience in Enduring Trials This patience is twofold. 1. Either in regard to man, when we endure harm without trying to get revenge. Or 2. In regard to God, when we suffer under his hand without complaining. A good person will not only do God's will, but will bear his will. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Micah 7, 9 Patiently bearing God's will is not an indifferent coldness. Patience is not apathy under God's hand. We should be attentive. Patiently bearing God's will is not forced patience. It is not to bear something because we cannot help it, which, as Erasmus said, is necessity rather than patience. Rather, patience is a cheerful submission of our will to God. The will of the Lord be done. Acts 21, 14 A godly person embraces what God does as being not only good, but as best for himself. The great quarrel between God and us is whose will shall stand. The will of the regenerate falls in with the will of God. There are four things opposite to this patient frame of soul. 1. Agitation of spirit. When the soul is troubled and pulled off the hinges insomuch that it is unfit for holy duties. When the strings of a lute are snarled up, the lute is not fit to make music. In the same way, when a Christian's spirit is perplexed and disturbed, he cannot make melody in his heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19 2. Discontent, which is a cheerless, stubborn mood. When a person is not angry at his sins, but at his condition, this is different from patience. 
Discontent is the daughter of pride. 3. Prejudice, which is a dislike of God and His ways, and a falling away from Christianity. Sinners have callous thoughts of God, and if He just touches them on a sore spot, they will at once go away from Him and take off His uniform. 4. Self-vindication, when instead of being humbled under God's hand, a person justifies himself as if he had not deserved what he suffers. A proud sinner stands upon his own defense and is ready to accuse God of unrighteousness, which is as if we would accuse the Son of darkness. This is far from patience. A godly person accepts God's wisdom and submits to His will. He not only says, Good is the word of the Lord, Isaiah 39.8, but he also says, Good is the rod of the Lord. Application If we want to give evidence of being godly, let us be eminent in this grace of patience. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Ecclesiastes 7.8 There are some graces that we will have no need of in heaven. We will not have any need of faith when we have full vision, nor patience when we have perfect joy. But in a dark, sorrowful night, there is need of these stars to shine. Let us show our patience in bearing God's will. Hebrews 10.36 Patience in bearing God's will is twofold. 1. When God removes any comfort from us. And 2. When God imposes any pain or suffering upon us. We must be patient when God removes any comfort from us. Does God take away any of our relatives? I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Ezekiel 24:16. Even so, it is still our duty to patiently accept and rest in the will of God. The loss of a close relative is like pulling away a limb from the body. However, grace will make our hearts calm and quiet and will produce holy patience in us under such a severe event. I will now provide eight considerations that may act as spiritual medicine to kill the worm of impatience under the loss of close friends and relatives. 1. The Lord never takes away any comfort from His people without giving them something better. The disciples parted with Christ's bodily presence, and He sent them the Holy Spirit. God eclipses one joy and enlarges another. He simply makes an exchange. He takes away a flower and gives a diamond. Two. When godly friends die, they are in a better condition. They are taken away from the evil to come. Isaiah 57, 1 They are out of the storm and have gone to the haven. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13 The godly have a portion promised to them upon their marriage to Christ but the portion is not paid until the day of their death. At death, the saints are promoted to the communion with God that they have so long hoped for 
and prayed for. Why, then, should we not willingly accept our friend's promotion? 3. You who are a saint have a friend in heaven whom you cannot lose. The Jews have a saying at their funerals, Let your consolation be in heaven. Are you mourning someone close to you? Look up to heaven and draw comfort from there. Your dearest relation is above. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27.10 God will be with you in the hour of death. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 23.4 Other friends you cannot keep, but God is a friend you cannot lose. He will be your guide in life your hope in death, and your reward after death. 4. Perhaps God is correcting you for a fault, and if so, you need to be patient. Maybe your friend had more of your love than God, and therefore God took your friend away so that the stream of your love might run back to him again. A gracious woman who was deprived first of her children and then of her husband said, Lord, you have a plan in regard to me. You intend to have all my love. God does not like to have any creature placed upon the throne of our affections. He will take away that comfort, and then he will lie nearest our heart. If a husband gives jewelry to his wife, and she so falls in love with that jewelry as to forget her husband, he will take away the jewelry so that her love may return to him again. A dear relation is like this jewelry. If we begin to idolize it, God will take it away, so that our love may return to him again. 5. A godly friend or relative is parted with, but not lost. That is lost which we have no hope of ever seeing again. Christian friends have only gone a little ahead of us. A time will soon come when there will be a meeting without parting. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 How glad one is to see a long-absent friend! Oh, what glorious joy there will be when old relations meet together in heaven and are in each other's embraces! When a great prince lands at the shore... The guns go off as a sign of joy. When godly friends have all landed on the heavenly shore and congratulate one another on their happiness, what incredible joy there will be! What music there will be from the choir of angels! How heaven will ring with their praises! The best thing of all is that those who were joined in the flesh here will be joined nearer than ever there and will be together in the presence of Christ. 6. We have deserved worse at God's hand. Has he taken away a child, a wife, or a parent? He could have taken away his spirit. Has he deprived us of a relative or friend? He could have deprived us of salvation. Does he put wormwood in the cup? We deserved poison. Thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Ezra 9.13 We have a sea of sin, 
but only a drop of suffering. 7. The patient soul enjoys itself most pleasingly. An impatient person is like a troubled sea that cannot rest. Isaiah 57.20 He tortures himself upon the rack of his own griefs and emotions, whereas patience calms the heart, as Christ calmed the sea when it was rough. Now there is a Sabbath, a heaven in the heart. In your patience, possess ye your souls. Luke 21.19 By faith, a person possesses God, and by patience, he possesses himself. 8. How patient many of the saints have been when the Lord has broken the very staff of their comfort in bereaving them of friends and relatives. The Lord took away Job's children, and he was so far from murmuring that he began blessing. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 God foretold the death of Eli's sons. In one day they shall die, both of them. 1 Samuel 2.34 But how patiently he took this sad news. It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. 1 Samuel 3.18 Notice the difference between Eli and Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked, Who is the Lord? Exodus 5.2 But Eli said, It is the Lord. When God struck two of Aaron's sons dead, Aaron held his peace. Leviticus 10.2-3 Patience opens the ear, but shuts the mouth. It opens the ear to hear the rod, but shuts the mouth so that it does not have a word to say against God. Behold here the patterns of patience, and will we not learn from them? These are heart-quietening considerations when God sets a reminder of mortality upon our comforts and removes dear relations from us. We must be patient when God imposes any pain or suffering on us. Patient in Tribulation Romans 12, 12 God sometimes lays heavy affliction on his people. Thy hand was heavy upon me. Psalm 32.4 The Hebrew word for afflicted signifies to be melted. God seems to melt his people in a furnace. God sometimes lays various afflictions on the saints. He breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds. Job 9.17 Just as we have various ways of sinning, so the Lord has various ways of afflicting. He deprives some people of their possessions. Others he afflicts with sickness. Others he confines to a prison. God has various arrows in his quiver that he shoots. Sometimes, God lets the affliction lie for a long time. There is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. Psalm 74.9 As it is with diseases, some are chronic and linger and afflict the body for several years on end. So it is with afflictions. The Lord sees fit to discomfort many of his precious ones with chronic afflictions, which they suffer for a long time, 
In all these cases, it is proper for the saints to rest patiently in the will of God. The Greek word for patient is a metaphor and alludes to one who stands firmly under a burden. This is the right idea of patience, when we bear affliction firmly without fainting or complaining. The test of a sailor is seen in a storm, and the test of a Christian is seen in affliction. That person has the proper skill of navigation who, when the boisterous winds blow from heaven, steers the ship of his soul wisely and does not dash upon the rock of impatience. A Christian should always maintain appropriate behavior, not behaving himself in an inappropriate manner or disguising himself with unrestrained emotion when the hand of God lies upon him. Patience adorns suffering. Affliction in Scripture is compared to a net. Thou broughtest us into the net. Psalm 66, 11. Some people have escaped the devil's net, yet the Lord allows them to be taken in the net of affliction. However, they must not be as a wild bull in a net. Isaiah 51.20 Kicking and fighting against their maker, but should rest patiently until God breaks the net and makes a way for their escape. I will offer four compelling arguments to encourage patience under those evils that God inflicts on us. 1. Afflictions are for our benefit. He for our profit. Hebrews 12.10 We pray that God would take such a course with us that may do our souls good. When God is afflicting us, He is hearing our prayers. He does it for our profit. Afflictions in themselves do not profit us except as God's Spirit works with them. Just as the waters of Bethesda could not give health of themselves, lest the angel descended and stirred them, John 5, 4, so the waters of affliction are not in themselves healing until God's Spirit assists and sanctifies them to us. Afflictions are profitable in many ways. 1. They make people clear-headed and wise. Physicians sometimes have mental patients bound and put on a frugal diet to bring them to the use of reason. Many people run stark mad in prosperity. They know neither God nor themselves. The Lord therefore binds them with cords of affliction, so that he may bring them to their right minds. If they be bound in fetters and be holden in cords of affliction, then he sheweth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He openeth also their ear to discipline. Job 36, 8-10 2. Afflictions are a friend to grace. 1. Afflictions produce grace. Theodore Beza acknowledged that God laid the foundation of his conversion during a violent sickness in Paris. 2. Afflictions enlarge grace. The people of God are indebted to their troubles. They would never have had so much grace if they had not met with such severe trials. Now the waters run and the spices flow forth. 
The saints thrive by affliction, just as the Lacedaemonians grew rich by war. God makes grace flourish most in the fall of the leaf. 3. Afflictions energize our pace on the way to heaven. It is with us as with children sent on an errand. If they meet with apples or flowers by the way, they linger and are in no great hurry to get home. But if anything frightens them, they run with all the speed they can to get to their father's house. So, in prosperity, we gather the apples and flowers and do not give much thought to heaven. But if troubles begin to arise and the times grow frightful, we make more haste to heaven and, with David, run the way of God's commandments. Psalm 119.32 1. God intermixes mercy with affliction. He soaks his sword of justice in the oil of mercy. There was no night so dark that Israel did not have a pillar of fire in it. There is no condition so dismal that we cannot see a pillar of fire to give us light. If the body is in pain and conscience is at peace, there is mercy. Affliction is for the prevention of sin. That is mercy. In the ark there was a rod and a pot of manna, the emblem of a Christian's condition. Mercy interlined with judgment. I will sing of mercy and judgment. Psalm 101.1 This is the rod and manna. 2. Patience proves that there is much of God in the heart. Patience is one of God's titles, the God of patience. Romans 15.5 If you have your heart cast in this blessed mold, it is a sign that God has imparted much of his own nature to you. You shine with some of his beams. Impatience demonstrates much unsoundness of heart. Just as it is with the body, you say that it is unwell if every little scratch of a pin makes the flesh burn. So it is the sign of an unwell Christian if every little affliction or inconvenience results in his impatience and disagreement with God. If there is any grace in such a heart, they who can see it must have good eyes. However, he who is of a patient spirit is advanced in the Christian religion and experiences much of the divine nature. 1. The result of affliction is glorious. The Jews were captive in Babylon, but how did it end? They departed from Babylon with vessels of silver, gold, and precious things. Ezra 1.6 So what is the result of affliction? It ends in endless glory. Acts 14.22 and 2 Corinthians 4.17 How this rock may quiet our impatient hearts. Who would not willingly travel along a little dirty path and plowed fields to reach a pleasant meadow? that contains a gold mine. Question. How can I turn my heart to a patient disposition? Answer. Get faith. All of our impatience proceeds from unbelief. Faith produces patience. When a storm of emotion begins to arise, faith says to the heart, 
as Christ did to the sea, Peace, be still. Mark 4.39 And there is calm at once. Question. How does faith produce patience? Answer. Faith reasons the soul into patience. Faith is like that town clerk in Ephesus who soothed the contention of the multitude and reasoned them sensibly into peace. Acts 19, 35-41 In the same way, when impatience begins to cry out and cause turmoil in the soul, faith calms the tumult and reasons the soul into holy patience. Faith says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Psalm 42.5 Are you afflicted? James 5.13 Is it not your Father who has done it? He is forming and polishing you to make you fit for glory. He strikes so that he may save. What is your trial? Is it sickness? God shakes the tree of your body so that some fruit may fall, even the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12:11. Are you driven from your home? God has prepared a city for you. Hebrews 11:16. Do you suffer reproach for Christ's sake? The spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. 1 Peter 4:14. 4, this is how faith reasons and debates the soul into patience. Pray to God for patience. Patience is a flower of God's planting. Pray that it may grow in your heart and send forth its sweet perfume. Prayer is a holy sound that gets rid of the evil spirit. Prayer composes the heart and puts it in tune when impatience has broken the strings and put everything into confusion. Oh, go to God! Prayer delights God's ear. It melts his heart. It opens his hand. God cannot deny a praying soul. Seek him with strong hope and persistence, and he will either remove the affliction, or, which is better, he will remove your impatience. Section 17. A godly person is a thankful person. The work to be done in heaven consists of praise and thanksgiving, and he should begin that work here that he will always be doing in heaven. The Jews have a saying that the world subsists by three things, the law, the worship of God, and thankfulness, as if where thankfulness were lacking, one of the pillars of the world were taken away, and it was ready to fall. The Hebrew word for praise comes from a root word that signifies to shoot up. The godly person sends up his praises like a volley of shots toward heaven. David, a man after God's heart, Acts 13.22, melodiously sang out God's praises. Therefore, he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. 2 Samuel 23.1 Even when a Christian is at his worst, he is still thankful. The prophet Jonah was a man of an irritable spirit. The sea was not as stirred with the storm as Jonah's heart was stirred with strong emotion. Yet even through this cloud, you could see grace appear. 
he had a thankful heart. I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Jonah 2.9 To illustrate this more clearly, I will express the following four points. 1. Praise and thanksgiving is a saint-like work. We find in Scripture that the godly are still called upon to praise God. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Psalm 133.20 Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. Psalm 149.5-6 Praise is a work appropriate for a saint. None but the godly can praise God properly. Just as all people do not have the skill to play the harp, so not everyone can sound forth the harmonious praises of God. Wicked people are obligated to praise God, but they are not fit to praise Him. None but a living Christian can tune God's praise. Wicked people are dead in sin, and how can those who are dead lift up God's praises? The grave cannot praise thee. Isaiah 38, 18 A wicked person stains and eclipses God's praise. If an unclean hand works with silk or flowered satin, it will blemish its beauty. God will say to the sinner, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Psalm 50, 16 Praise is not appropriate for any but the godly. Praise is comely for the upright. Psalm 33, 1 A profane person speaking God's praises is like a dunghill with flowers stuck in it. Praise in the mouth of a sinner is like a sermon in the mouth of a fool. How unsightly it is for anyone to praise God if his whole life dishonors God. It is as improper for a wicked person to praise God as it is for a thief to talk of living by faith or for the devil to quote scripture. The godly alone are suitable to sing God's praises. It is called the garment of praise. Isaiah 61.3 This garment fits gracefully only on a saint's back. 1. Thanksgiving is a more noble part of God's worship. Our needs may send us to prayer, but it takes a truly genuine heart to thank God. The raven cries and the lark sings. In petition, we act like men. In thanksgiving, we act like angels. 2. Thanksgiving is a God-exalting work. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. Psalm 50:23 Although nothing can add the slightest amount to God's essential glory, yet praise exalts him in the eyes of others. Praise is setting forth God's honor, lifting up his name, displaying the trophy of his goodness, proclaiming his excellence, spreading his renown, and breaking open the box of ointment whereby the sweet savor and perfume of God's name is sent abroad into the world. 3. 
Praise is a more distinguishing work. By this, a Christian excels all the cursed spirits. Do you talk about God? So can the devil. He brought scripture to Christ. Do you profess religion? So can the devil. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Do you fast? He never eats. Do you believe? They have a faith of assent. The devils also believe and tremble. James 2.19 However, just as Moses worked such a miracle that none of the magicians could reproduce, so this is a work that Christians may do that none of the demons can do. And that is the work of thanksgiving. The demons blaspheme, but do not give thanks. Satan has his fiery darts, but not his harp and violin. Application 1. The true tendency and character of a godly person is to be much in doxologies and praises. Lactantius said that he who is unthankful to his God cannot be a good person. A godly person is a God-exalter. The saints are temples of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Where should God's praises be sounded if not in His temples? A good heart is never weary of praising God. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34.1 Some people will be thankful while the memory of the mercy is fresh, but will soon afterward cease being thankful. The Carthaginians used at first to send the tenth of their yearly revenue to Hercules, but little by little they grew weary and stopped sending it entirely. As long as David drew his breath, he would sing forth God's praise. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Psalm 146.2 David would not now and then give God a little bit of music and then hang up the instrument, but he continually celebrated God's praise. A godly person will express his thankfulness in every duty. He mingles thanksgiving with prayer. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Philippians 4, 6 Thanksgiving is the more divine part of prayer. In our petitions, we express our own necessities, but in our thanksgivings, we declare God's virtues. Prayer goes up as incense when it is perfumed with thanksgiving. Just as a godly person expresses thankfulness in every duty, he also does so in every condition. He will be thankful in adversity as well as prosperity. In everything, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 A gracious soul is thankful and rejoices that he is drawn nearer to God, even if it is by the cords of affliction. When it goes well with him, he praises God's mercy. When it does not go well with him, he magnifies God's justice. When God has a rod in his hand, a godly person will have a psalm in his mouth. The devil smiting Job was like striking a musical instrument. Job sounded forth praise. The Lord hath taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1, 21. When God's spiritual plants are cut and bleed, they drip thankfulness. The saints' tears cannot drown their praises. If this is the sign of a godly person, then the number of godly people appears to be very small. Few are in the work of praise. Sinners do not give God the thanks He is owed. Where are the nine? Luke 17, 17. Ten lepers were healed, but only one returned to give praise. Most of the people in the world are sepulchers to bury God's praise. You will hear some people swearing and cursing, but few who truly thank God. Praise is the yearly rent that people owe, but most people are behind on their rent. God gave King Hezekiah a marvelous deliverance, but Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. 2 Chronicles 32.25 That but was a blot on his coat of arms. Some people, instead of being thankful to God, render evil for good. They are the worse for mercy. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Deuteronomy 32.6 This is like the toad that turns the most wholesome herb to poison. Where will we find a grateful Christian? We read of the saints having harps in their hands. Revelation 5.8 The emblem of praise. Many people have tears in their eyes and complaints in their mouths, but few thank and praise the name of God with harps in their hands. Application 2 Let us examine ourselves whether we are godly by determining if we are thankful for mercy. It is a difficult thing to be thankful. Question How may we know whether we are properly thankful? Answer 1. We are properly thankful when we are careful to recognize, record, and remember God's mercy. David appointed certain of the Levites to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. 1 Chronicles 16.4 Physicians say that the memory is the first thing that decays. It is certainly true in spiritual matters. They soon forget his works. Psalm 106.13 A godly person records God's mercies as a physician does his remedies, in a book so that they will not be forgotten. Mercies are jewels that should be locked up. A child of God always keeps two books by him, one to write his sins in so that he may be humble, and the other to write God's mercies in so that he may be thankful. Answer 2. We are properly thankful when our hearts are the main instrument in the music of praise. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. Psalm 111.1 David would tune not only his harp, but also his heart. If the heart does not join with the tongue, there can be no harmony. Where the heart is lacking, the parrot can make just as good music as the Christian. Answer 3. We are properly thankful when the blessings that we receive endear our love to God 
even more. David's miraculous preservation from death drew forth his love to God. I love the Lord. Psalm 116.1 It is one thing to love our blessings, but it is another thing to love the Lord. Many people love their deliverance, but not their deliverer. We should love God more than His blessings. Answer 4. We are properly thankful when we take all worthiness from ourselves in giving our praise to God. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shewed unto thy servant. Genesis 32.10 It is as if Jacob had said, Lord, the worst part you gave to me is better than I deserve. Mephibosheth bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am? 2 Samuel 9.8 In the same way, when a thankful Christian makes a survey of his blessings and sees how much he enjoys that others better than he lack, he says, Lord, what am I, a dead dog, that free grace would look upon me and that you would crown me with such loving kindness? Answer 5. We are properly thankful when we put God's mercy to good use. We use what He gives us for Him and to grow nearer to Him. The Lord gives us health, and we spend and are spent for Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 15 He gives us a home and a job, and we honor the Lord with our substance. Proverbs 3, 9 He gives us children, and we dedicate them to God and educate them for Him. We do not bury our talents, but we trade with them. This is what it means to put our blessings to good use. A gracious heart is like a piece of good ground that, having received the seed of mercy, produces a crop of obedience. Answer 6. We are properly thankful when our hearts are more enlarged for spiritual blessings than for earthly blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 A godly person thanks God more for a fruitful heart than for a full crop. He is more thankful for Christ than for a kingdom. Socrates used to say that he loved the king's smile more than his gold. A pious heart is more thankful for a smile of God's face than he would be for all the gold of the Indies. Answer 7. We are properly thankful when mercy motivates us to duty. It causes a spirit of activity for God. Mercy is not like the sun to the fire to dull it, but is as oil to the wheel to make it perform better. David wisely argues from mercy to duty. Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 116, 8-9 Bernard used to say, Lord, I have two mites, a soul and a body, and I give them both to you. Answer 8 
We are properly thankful when we motivate others to this angelic work of praise. David did not only thank God himself, but he also called upon others to do so. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 111.1 The sweetest music is that which is in harmony. When many saints join together in harmony, they make heaven ring with their praises. Just as one drunkard calls upon another, so in a holy sense one Christian will encourage another to the work of thankfulness. Answer 9. We are properly thankful when we not only speak God's praise, but when we also live His praise. It is called gratiarum actio, an act of thanksgiving. We give thanks when we live thanks. Those who are mirrors of mercy should be patterns of piety. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. Obadiah 1.17 To praise God with our mouths while dishonoring Him in our lives is to live corruptly and contrary to Christianity. It is to be like those Jews who bowed their knees to Christ and then spit on Him. Mark 15. 19. Answer 10. We are properly thankful when we proclaim God's praises to posterity, telling our children what God has done for us. In such a time of need, He provided for us. From such a sickness, He raised us up. In such a temptation, He helped us. O God, our fathers have told us what work Thou didst in their days in the times of old. Psalm 44.1 By communicating our experiences to our children, God's name is immortalized, and His mercies will bring forth a plentiful crop of praise when we are gone. Heman the Ezraite asks the question, Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Psalm 88.10 The answer is yes, in the sense that when we are dead, we praise God, because having left the chronicle of God's mercies with our children, they begin a life of thankfulness, and so make God's praise live when we are dead. Application 3. Let us prove our godliness by gratefulness. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Psalm 29.2. It is good to be thankful. It is good to sing praises unto our God. Psalm 147.1. It is bad when the tongue, that organ of praise, is out of tune and harmony by murmuring and discontent. However, it is a good thing to be thankful. It is good because this is all the creature can do to lift up God's name. And it is good because it tends to make us good. The more thankful we are, the more holy we are. While we pay this tribute of praise, our supply of grace increases. In other debts, the more we pay, the less we have. But the more we pay this debt of thankfulness, the more grace we have. Thankfulness is what we owe to God. Kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 148, 11 to 13.
Praise is the tribute or custom to be paid into the King of Heaven's coffers. Surely while God renews our lease, we must renew our rent. We have much reason to be thankful. It is a principle grafted in nature to be thankful for blessings. Even the heathen praised Jupiter for their victories. What full clusters of mercies hang on us when we go to count God's mercies? With David, we must confess ourselves to be perplexed. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order. Psalm 45 Just as God's mercies are past numbering, so they are past measuring. David took the longest measuring line he could get. He measured from earth to the clouds and even above the clouds. Yet this measure would not reach the heights of God's mercies. Thy mercy is great above the heavens. Psalm 108.4 Oh, how God has enriched us with his silver showers. A whole constellation of mercies has shined in our hemisphere. What earthly blessings we have received. Every day we see a new tide of mercy coming in. The wings of mercy have covered us, and the breasts of mercy have fed us. The God which fed me all my life long unto this day. Genesis 48.15 What snares laid for us have been broken. What fears have blown over. The Lord has made our bed, while he has made graves for others. He has taken such care of us as if he had no one else to take care of. Never was the cloud of providence so black that we could not see a rainbow of love in the cloud. We have been made to swim in a sea of mercy, and does not all this call for thankfulness? That which may put another string into the instrument of our praise and make it sound louder is to consider what spiritual blessings God has bestowed upon us. He has given us water from the upper springs. He has opened the wardrobe of heaven and brought us out a better garment than any of the angels wear. He has given us the best robe and put on us the ring of faith by which we are married to him. These are mercies of the first magnitude, which deserve to have an asterisk put on them. God keeps the best wine until last. John 2.10 Here, He gives us blessings only in small quantities, but the greatest things are stored up for later. Here, there are some drops of honey and foretastes of God's love, but the rivers of pleasure are reserved for paradise. We may well take the harp and violin and triumph in God's praise. Who can tread upon these hot coals of God's love without his heart burning in thankfulness? Thankfulness is the best policy. There is nothing lost by it. To be thankful for one blessing is the way to have more. It is like pouring water into a pump that brings out more. Musicians love to sound their trumpets where there is the best echo. And God loves to bestow His mercies where there is the best echo of thankfulness. Thankfulness is a frame of heart in which God delights. 
If repentance is the joy of heaven, then praise is the music. Bernard calls thankfulness the sweet balm that drips from a Christian. There are four sacrifices that God is very pleased with. The sacrifice of Christ's blood. The sacrifice of a broken heart. The sacrifice of charity. And the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Richard Greenham said that praise and thanksgiving is the most excellent part of God's worship. For this will continue in the heavenly choir when all other exercises of religion have ceased. What an abhorrent thing ingratitude is. It gives a dye and tint to every other sin and makes it crimson. Ingratitude is the spirit of wickedness. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. Obadiah 1.7 Ingratitude is worse than brutish. Isaiah 1.3 It is said of Julius Caesar that he would never forgive an ungrateful person. Even though God is a sin-pardoning God, he hardly knows how to pardon for this. How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me, and when I had fed them to the full, they then committed adultery. Jeremiah 5.7 Draco of Greece, whose laws were written in blood, published an edict that if anyone had received a benefit from someone else, and it could be proved against him that he had not been grateful for it, he should be put to death. An unthankful person is a monster in nature and a paradox in Christianity. He is the scorn of heaven and the plague of earth. An ungrateful person never does well except in one thing, that is, when he dies. Not being thankful is the cause of all the judgments that have rested upon us. Our unthankfulness for health has been the cause of so much mortality. Our gospel unthankfulness and sermon saturation has been the reason why God has put so many lights under a bushel. As Bradford said, my unthankfulness was the death of King Edward VI. Who will spend money on a piece of ground that produces nothing but briars? Unthankfulness seals the golden vial of God's bounty so that it will not drip. Question. What should we do if we desire to be thankful? Answer 1. If you desire to be thankful, get your heart deeply humbled with the sense of your own sinfulness. A broken heart is the best pipe to sound forth God's praise. He who studies his sins wonders that he has anything at all and that God would shine on such a dunghill. The Apostle Paul said that he was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy. 1 Timothy 1.13 How thankful Paul was! How he boldly and gladly proclaimed free grace! A proud person will never be thankful. He looks on all his blessings as either what he obtained on his own or what he deserved. If he has wealth and possessions, he believes he has obtained this by his intellect and hard work, failing to consider Deuteronomy 8.18. Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, 
for it is he that giveth the power to get wealth. Pride stops the flow of gratitude. O Christian, consider your unworthiness. See yourself as the least of saints and the chief of sinners, and then you will be thankful. Answer 2. Strive to see clear demonstrations of God's love to you. Read God's love in the imprint of holiness upon your hearts. God's love poured in will make the vessels of mercy overflow with thankfulness. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Revelation 1 5 to 6. The deepest springs yield the sweetest water. Hearts that are deeply mindful of God's love yield the sweetest praises. Section 18. A Godly Person Loves the Saints. The best way to discern grace in yourself is to love grace in others. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 What is Christianity but binding together? A knitting together of hearts. Faith knits us to God, and love knits us one to another. There is a twofold love to others. A civil love. A godly person has a love of civility to all. Abraham stood up, and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. Genesis 23, 7 Though they were outsiders and not within the confines of the covenant, yet Abraham was friendly to them. Grace sweetens and refines nature. Be courteous. 1 Peter 3, 8 We are to have a love of civility to all because they are of the same clay, of the same lump and mold as we are, and they are a piece of God's intricate needlework, because our kind behavior toward them may be a means to win them over and put them in love with the ways of God. Irritable, rude behavior often alienates the hearts of others and hardens them most against holiness, whereas loving behavior is very agreeable and may be like a magnet to draw them to true Christianity. A pious and holy love. A godly person has a pious and holy love primarily for those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 The other was a love of courtesy, but this is a love of delight. Augustine said that our love for the saints should be more than the love we have toward our natural relations, because the bond of the Spirit is nearer than that of blood. This love for the saints, which testifies that a person is godly, must have seven components. 1. Love to the saints must be sincere. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18 The honey that drips from the comb is pure, and love must also be pure and without deceit. Many people are like Naphtali. He giveth goodly words, 
Genesis 49:21. Pretended love is like a painted fire, which has no heat. Some people hide malice under a false veil of love. I have read of Emperor Antonius that where he made a show of friendship, he intended the most harm. 2. Love to the saints must be spiritual. We must love them because they are saints, not out of dignity because they are nice or have been kind to us. We must love them from spiritual considerations because of the good that is in them. We are to reverence their holiness, or else it is a carnal love. 3. Love to the saints must be widespread. We must love all who bear God's image. 1. We must love them even though they have many weaknesses. A Christian in this life is like a good face full of freckles. You who cannot love another because of his imperfections have never yet seen your own face in the mirror. Your brother's weaknesses may make you have compassion on him. His graces must make you love him. 2. We must love the saints even though in some things they do not agree with us. Another Christian may differ from me in lesser matters, either because he has more light than I, or because he has less light. If he differs from me because he has more light, then I have no reason to condemn him. If he differs from me because he has less light, then I should bear with him as the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3, 7 In things of an indifferent nature, there should be Christian forbearance. 3. We must love the saints even if their graces eclipse and surpass ours. We should thank God for the prominence of another's grace, because Christianity is honored by this. Pride is not quite slain in a believer. Saints themselves are apt to envy and grumble at each other's virtues. Is it not strange that the same person would hate one man for his sin and envy another for his virtue? Christians need to look to their hearts. Love is right and genuine when we can rejoice in the virtues of others, even though they seem to eclipse our own. 4. Love to the saints must be admiring. We must esteem them above others. He honoreth them that fear the Lord. Psalm 15.4 We are to look upon the wicked as lumber, but upon the saints as jewels. We must hold them in great respect. 5. Love to the saints must be social. We should delight in their company. I am a companion of all them that fear thee. Psalm 119.63 It is a kind of hell to be in the company of the wicked, where we cannot choose but to hear God's name dishonored. It was a capital crime to carry the image of Tiberius engraved on a ring or coin into any shameful place. Those who have the image of God engraved on them should not go into any sinful, corrupt company. I have only read of two living people who desired to keep company with the dead, and they were possessed by the devil. Matthew 8:28. What comfort can a living Christian have from conversing with the dead? 
Jude 1.12. However, the society of saints is desirable. This is not to walk among the tombs, but among beds of spices. Believers are Christ's garden. Their graces are the flowers. Their heavenly discourse is the fragrant scent of these flowers. 6. Love to the saints must be expansive. We should be ready to do all services of love to them. Vindicate their names, contribute to their necessities, and, like the Good Samaritan, pour oil and wine into their wounds. Luke 10, 34-35 Love cannot be concealed, but it is active in its sphere and will lay itself out for the good of others. 7. Love to the saints must be constant. He that dwelleth in love, 1 John 4.16. Our love must not only lodge for a night, but we must dwell in love. Let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13.1. Just as love must be sincere and without hypocrisy, Romans 12.9, so it must be constant and without deficiency. Love must be like the pulse, which is always beating. It should not be like those Galatians who at one time were ready to pluck out their eyes for Paul, Galatians 4.15, but afterward were ready to pluck out his eyes. Love should expire only with our life. Certainly, if our love to the saints is thus divinely qualified, we may hopefully conclude that we are listed among the godly. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13.35 What causes a godly person to love the saints is the fact that he is closely related to them. There should be love among relatives. There is a spiritual relation among believers. They all have one head, Christ, and therefore should all have one heart. They are stones of the same building, 1 Peter 2, 5. And should not these stones be cemented together with love? Application 1. If the distinguishing mark of a godly person is to love the saints, then how sad it is to see this grace of love in decline. This characteristic of godliness is almost blotted out among Christians. England was once a pleasant garden where the flower of love grew, but surely now this flower is either plucked or withered. Where is that concord and unity that there should be among Christians? I ask you, would there be such censuring and despising, such reproaching and undermining one another, if there were love? Instead of bitter tears, there are bitter attitudes. It is a sign that iniquity abounds when the love of many grows cold. Matthew 24, 12 There is that distance among some professing Christians as if they had not received the same spirit or as if they did not hope for the same heaven. In primitive times, there was so much love among the godly that it amazed the heathen. And now there is so little that Christians should be ashamed. Application 2 
If we desire to be listed among God's saints, let us love the brotherhood. 1 Peter 2.17 Those who will one day live together should love together now. What is it that makes a disciple accept love? John 13.35 The devil has knowledge, but that which makes him a devil is that he lacks love. To persuade Christians to love, consider the following. The saints have in them that which may make us love them. They are the skillful embroidery and workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 They have those rare features of grace that nothing except a pencil from heaven could draw. Their eyes sparkle forth beauty. Thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. Song of Solomon 7.7 This makes Christ himself delight in his spouse. The king is held in the galleries. Song of Solomon 7.5 The church is the daughter of a prince. Song of Solomon 7.1 She is waited on by angels. Hebrews 1.14 She has a palace of glory reserved for her. John 14.2 Should not all this bring forth our love? Consider how evil it is for saints not to love. 1. It is unnatural. The saints are Christ's lambs. John 21.15 It is normal for a dog to worry a lamb, but for one lamb to worry another, is unnatural. The saints are brethren. 1 Peter 3, 8. How heartless it is for brethren not to love. 2. Not to love is a foolish thing. Why would God's people oppose each other when they have enough enemies of their own among the unsaved? The wicked join together against the godly. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people. Psalm 83.3 Although there may be a private enmity between those who are wicked, yet they will all agree and unite against the saints. If two greyhounds are snarling at a bone and you put a rabbit between them, they will leave the bone and chase the rabbit. In the same way, if wicked people have private differences among themselves and the godly are near them, they will stop fighting among themselves and will pursue the godly. When God's people have so many enemies around who look for their inconsistencies and are glad when they can do them harm, will the saints fight and divide into parties among themselves? Not to love is very improper. God's people are in a common adversity. They suffer in the same cause, and for them to disagree is entirely improper. Why does the Lord bring his people together in affliction except to bring them together in affection? Metals will unite in a furnace. If ever Christians unite, it should be in the furnace of affliction. Chrysostom compares affliction to a shepherd's dog that makes all the sheep run together. God's rod has this loud voice in it. Love one another. John 1334, 1512, 1517. How shameful it is when Christians are suffering together.
to then be striving together. Not to love is very sinful. 1. For saints not to love is to live in contradiction to the Bible. The apostles are continually beating upon the string of love, as if it made the sweetest music in Christianity. This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. 1 John 4.21 See also Romans 13.8 Colossians 3.14 1 Peter 1.22 1 John 3.11 Not to love is to walk contrary to the word of God. Can he who goes against the rules of medicine be a good physician? Can he who goes against the rules of true religion be a good Christian? 2. Lack of love among Christians greatly silences the spirit of prayer. Angry emotions make cold prayers. Where bitterness and contentions prevail, instead of praying for one another, Christians will be ready to pray against one another, like the disciples who prayed for fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. Luke 9.54 Do you think that God will hear such prayers that come from a wrathful heart? Will he eat our unleavened bread? Will he accept those duties that are soured with bitterness of spirit? Will that prayer that is offered with the strange fire of our sinful emotions ever go up as incense? 3. This envy and resentment hinder the progress of piety in our own souls. The flower of grace will not grow in a wrathful heart. The body may as well thrive while it has the plague as a soul can thrive that is infected with malice. While Christians are debating, grace is abating. As sinful anger grows, health decays. As hatred increases, holiness declines. Not to love is very fatal. These differences among God's people foretell ruin. All harm enters in at this gap of sin and division. Matthew 12, 25. Animosities among saints may make God leave his temple. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood upon the threshold of the house. Ezekiel 10, 4. Does not God seem to stand upon the threshold of his house, as if he were getting ready to fly away? Woe to us if God departs from us. Hosea 9.12 If the captain leaves the ship, it is indeed sinking. If God leaves a land, it must necessarily sink in ruin. Question. How will we attain this excellent grace of love? Answer 1. Beware of the devil's messengers, those who run his errands and make it their work to blow the coals of contention among Christians, rendering one party repugnant to another. Answer 2. Keep up friendly meetings. Christians should not avoid one another as if they had the plague. Answer 3. Let us plead that promise. I will give them one heart and one way. Jeremiah 32:39. Let us pray that there may be no conflict among Christians except as to who will love most. 
Let us pray that God will divide Babylon and unite Zion. Application 3. It is a characteristic of a godly person to love the saints. If those who are godly love the saints, then those who hate the saints must stand condemned as ungodly. The wicked have an unyielding malice against God's people. And how can such enmity be reconciled? To hate saintship is a trademark of the wicked. Those who insult the godly are the curse of creation. If all the scalding drops in God's vial will make them miserable, they will be miserable. Never did any who hated and persecuted the saints thrive at that business. What became of Julian, Diocletian, Maximinus, Valerian, Cardinal Crescentus, and others? The bowels of some of them came out, and others choked in their own blood so that they might be set up as standing monuments of God's vengeance. They that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Psalm 34, 21. Section 19. A godly person does not indulge himself in any sin. Although sin lives in a godly person, yet a godly person does not live in sin. Every person who has wine in him is not in wine. A godly person may step into sin through weakness but he does not stay on that road. See if there be any wicked way in me. Psalm 139, 24. Question. What does it mean to indulge sin? Answer 1. To indulge sin is to hold on to it and to feed it. As a loving parent may indulge his child and let him have what he wants, so to indulge sin is to cater to sin. Answer 2. To indulge sin is to commit it with delight. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 In this sense, a godly person does not indulge sin. Although sin is in him, he is troubled at it and would gladly get rid of it. There is as much difference between sin in the wicked and sin in the godly as between poison being in a serpent and poison being in a man. Poison in a serpent is in its natural place and is delightful, but poison in a person's body is offensive, and he uses antidotes to get rid of it. In the same way, sin in a wicked person is delightful, being in its natural place. But sin in a child of God is burdensome, and he uses all means to get rid of it. The sin is opposed. The will is against it. A godly person enters his protest against sin. That which I do, I allow not. Romans 7.15 Although a child of God commits sin, he hates the sin he commits. Romans 7 In particular, there are four kinds of sin that a godly person will not allow himself to indulge in. 1. Secret sins. Some people are more proper than to commit blatant open sin. That would be a stain on their reputation. However, 
they will sin in a corner. Saul secretly practiced mischief. 1 Samuel 23.9 Not all will sin on a balcony, but perhaps they will sin behind the curtain. Rachel did not carry her father's images like a saddlebag to be exposed to public view, but she put them under her and sat on them. Genesis 31:34. Many people carry their sins secretly like a candle in a dark lantern, but a godly person does not dare to sin secretly. He knows that God sees the secrets of the heart. Psalm 44:21. Just as God cannot be deceived by our cunningness, so he cannot be excluded by our secrecy. A godly person knows that secret sins are in some sense worse than others. They reveal more deceit and godlessness. The one who tries to hide his sins makes himself believe that God does not see. Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. Ezekiel 8.12 Those who have bad eyes think that the sun is dim. How it provokes God that people's atheism would promote the lie that God does not see and know everything. He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Psalm 94.9 A godly person knows that secret sins will not escape God's justice. A judge on the bench cannot punish any offense except what is proven by witnesses. He cannot punish the treason of the heart, but the sins of the heart are as visible to God as if they were written upon the forehead. Just as God will reward secret duties, so he will avenge secret sins. 2. Gainful Sins Gain is the golden bait Satan uses to fish for souls. This was the last temptation he used with Christ. All these things will I give thee. Matthew 4, 9. However, Christ saw the hook under the bait. Many people who have escaped blatant and open sins are still caught in a golden net. To gain the world, they will use indirect methods. A godly person does not dare to travel for riches along the devil's highway. Those are sad gains that make a person lose peace of conscience and ultimately heaven. He who gets wealth by injustice stuffs his pillow with thorns, and his head will lie very uneasy when he comes to die. 3. A Beloved Sin There is usually one sin that is the favorite, a sin which the heart is most fond of. A beloved sin lies in a person's heart as the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on him. John 13.23 A godly person will not indulge a pet sin. I kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm 18.23 He will not indulge the sin of his nature to which the bias of his heart more naturally inclines. Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king. 
1 Kings 22.31 A godly person fights with this king, Sin. The prophet of Apollo answered the people of Siraha that if they wanted to live in peace among themselves, they must make continual war with those strangers who were on their borders. If we want peace in our souls, we must maintain a war against our beloved sin and never stop fighting it until it is defeated. Question. How will we recognize the beloved sin? Answer 1. The sin that a person does not love to have reproved is the beloved sin. Herod could not endure having his incest spoken against. If the prophet meddles with that sin, it will cost him his head. People can be content to have other sins spoken against, but if the minister puts his finger on the sore and touches this sin, their hearts begin to burn in malice against him, a clear sign that the sin is a Herodias. Answer 2. The sin we often think about is the beloved sin. Whichever way the thoughts go, the heart goes. He who is in love with a person cannot keep his thoughts off that person. Examine what sin runs most in your mind. What sin is first in your thoughts and greets you in the morning? That is the predominant sin. Answer 3. The sin that has the most power over us and most easily leads us captive is the one beloved by the soul. There are some sins that a person can resist better than others. If some sins come to be entertained, he can more easily put them off. However, there is one sin that comes to be loved. He cannot deny that sin, but is overcome by it. That is the beloved sin. The rich young man in the gospel had repulsed many sins, but there was one sin that frustrated him and that was covetousness. Christians, pay attention to what sins you are most readily led captive by. That is the harlot in your arms. It is a sad thing that a person would be so captivated by lust that if it asks him to part with not only half the kingdom, Esther 7.2, but the whole kingdom of heaven, he will part with it to gratify that lust. Answer 4. The sin that people use arguments to defend is the beloved sin. He who has a jewel in his pocket will defend it as his life. So when there is any sin in the heart, people will defend it. The sin we advocate and dispute for is the besetting sin. If the sin is passion, we plead for it. I do well to be angry. Jonah 4.9. If the sin is covetousness, and we vindicate it, and perhaps twist Scripture to justify it, that is the sin that lies nearest the heart. Answer 5. The sin that most troubles us, and flies most in the face in an hour of sickness and distress, is the Delilah sin. When Joseph's brothers were distressed, their sin of selling their brother came to remembrance. We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, 
Therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42:21. In the same way, when someone is on a sickbed and conscience tells him that he has been guilty of a certain sin and continued in it and even savored it as honey under his tongue, then conscience is reading him a sad lecture, and he can be sure that this is the beloved sin. Answer 6. The sin that a person finds most difficult to give up is the endeared sin. Of all his sons, Jacob found the most difficulty in parting with Benjamin. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. Genesis 42:36. So the sinner says, I have parted with this sin and that sin, but must I let Benjamin go? Must I part with this delightful sin? That sin goes to the heart. Think of a castle that has several forts near it. First and second forts are taken, but when it comes to the castle, the governor will rather fight and die than surrender that. In the same way, a person may allow some of his sins to be demolished, but when it comes to one sin, the taking of the castle, he will never agree to part with that. That is certainly the master sin. The besetting sin is a God-provoking sin. The wise men of Troy counseled Priam to send Helena back to the Greeks, not permitting himself to be abused any longer by the charms of her beauty, because keeping her within the city would lay the foundation of a fatal war. In the same way, we should put away our Delilah sin so it does not anger the God of heaven and make him begin a war against us. The besetting sin is of all others the most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in this beloved sin. This is like a poison striking the heart, which brings death. A godly person will lay the axe of repentance to this sin and cut it down. He sets the sin, as Uriah, to the forefront of the battle so it may be slain. 2 Samuel 14.15 He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out this right eye so that he may see better to go to heaven. 4. Those sins that the world considers lesser. There is no such thing as a little sin, yet some may be comparatively considered lesser. However, a good man will not partake in these. Some of these sins that may be considered lesser are explained below. Sins of omission. Some think it is fine to omit family devotions or private prayer. They can go for several months without God ever hearing from them. A godly person will as soon live without food as without prayer. He knows that every creature of God is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 5 The bird may shame many Christians, for it never takes a drop without lifting its eye toward heaven. A godly person does not dare to allow himself vain, light discourse much less that which looks like a promise. 
If God will judge for idle words, will he not judge much more for empty promises? A godly person does not dare to allow himself to take part in careless and hasty condemnation and criticism. Some think this is a small matter. They will not swear, but they will slander. This is very evil. You wound a person in that which is dearest to him. He who is godly turns all his condemnation upon himself. He judges himself for his own sins, but is very considerate and tender of the good name of another. Application If you want to be numbered among the saints, do not indulge yourself in any sin. Consider the harm that one sin lived in will do. One sin gives Satan as much advantage against you as more sins. The fowler can hold a bird by one wing. Satan held Judas fast by one sin. One sin lived in proves that the heart is not healthy. He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. The person who indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. One sin will make way for more. A little theft can open the door to more. Sins are linked and chained together. One sin will lead to more. David's adultery led to murder. One sin never goes alone. If there is only one nest egg, the devil can brood upon it. One sin is as much a violation of God's law as more sins. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10 If the king makes a law against felony, treason, and murder, and if someone is guilty of only one of these, he is as much a transgressor of the law as if he were guilty of all three. One sin lived in prevents Christ from entering. One stone in the pipe keeps out the water. One sin indulged in obstructs the soul and keeps the streams of Christ's blood from running into it. One sin lived in will spoil all your good duties. One drop of poison will spoil a glass of wine. Abimelech, an illegitimate child, destroyed seventy of his brethren. Judges 9.5 One wretched sin will destroy seventy prayers. One dead fly will corrupt the jar of ointment. One sin lived in will be a canker worm to destroy the peace of conscience. It takes away the manna out of the ark and leaves only a rod. One sin is a pirate to rob a Christian of his comfort. One off-key string puts all the music out of tune. One sin accepted will spoil the music of conscience. One sin allowed will condemn as well as more sins. One disease is enough to kill. No matter how strong a fence is made, if only one gap is left open, a wild beast may enter and tread down the corn. If only one sin is allowed in the soul, a gap is left open for the devil to enter. 
Chrysostom said that a soldier may have his helmet and his breastplate on. But if only one place has no armor, the bullet may enter there, and he can just as well be shot as if he had no armor on. In the same way, if you favor only one sin, you leave a part of your soul unprotected, and the bullet of God's wrath may enter there and shoot you. One sin may shut you out of heaven. As Jerome asked, What difference is there between being shut out of heaven for one sin or for more? Therefore, beware of cherishing one sin. One millstone will sink a person into the sea as well as a hundred. One sin harbored in the soul will make us unfit for suffering. How soon might an hour of trial come? A man who has hurt his shoulder cannot carry a heavy burden and he who has any guilt in his conscience cannot carry the cross of Christ. Will he who cannot deny his lust for Christ deny his life for Christ? One unmortified sin in the soul will bring forth the bitter fruit of apostasy. If, then, you want to give evidence of being godly, give a certificate of divorce to every sin. Kill the Goliath sin. Let not sin therefore reign. Romans 6.12 In the original it is, Let not sin king it over you. Grace and sin may be together, but grace and the love of sin cannot be together. Therefore, negotiate with sin no longer, but with the spear of mortification, spill the heart blood of every sin.